Welcome to the EMS Educator Podcast, powered by Prodigy EMS. Join us for relevant, high-quality discussions around the best practices in EMS education. You'll find interviews with experts in EMS, education, simulation, medical direction, leadership, and more. Hello and welcome to another edition of the EMS Educator Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Rob Lawrence. Now, we're going to be talking today about ultrasound in the pre-hospital setting, how it was, how it has impacted care. We're going to look at its key components and discuss all of the facets to successfully implement, operate, and sustain a ultrasound program. Uh, but before we get there, I mentioned I was just one of the hosts. Let's bring in that other very important host of VIH, Hilary Gates. Thanks, Rob. Really excited to be here with uh, three EMS educators and physicians who uh, do ultrasound training for EMS agencies across the country. We're going to get quite a smattering of variety and ideas here. And I'd like to have Maya lead off our guest host, Maya Dorsett from Prodigy, um, the discussion. But before we do that, um, I'll have each guest introduce themselves. Uh, so I'm Melissa Miller. I am a ER and EMS physician out here in Austin, Texas. Uh, I work at two hospitals out here, one that's rural-based. Uh, the other one is a level two trauma center. So I am responsible primarily for ultrasound training out here in Austin, Travis County EMS. Hi, I'm Frances Russell. I'm an associate professor of emergency medicine at Indiana University. I was previously the division and fellowship director, and now I'm mainly in charge of ultrasound research and recently got into uh, teaching our paramedics and EMTs ultrasound here in Indianapolis. My name is Jenna White. I am an emergency and EMS physician in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I work clinically at the University of New Mexico Hospitals. And I do a fair bit of EMS education surrounding pre-hospital ultrasound and oversee a number of primarily rural EMS agencies in Sandoval County, New Mexico, which is northwest of Albuquerque. So one of the things that I'm really most excited about is that I think we have a group of people who can really represent sort of a diversity of experiences so that we can see what the possibilities are in different clinical settings, as well as what some of the research frontiers can be within ultrasound. So I think that the first thing is addressing why should something like this be covered on the EMS Educator podcast, because we specifically cover topics in EMS education. But I think whatever technology that we put out there, we really have to think about what, how does that actually change care for our patients? Um, but what are the logistics behind it? So, right, is the juice worth the squeeze for not just the implementation of the technology, but what is the work that goes into making it so that that technology um, is put out there in a way that people are adequately trained and getting the feedback. And I think that's why I'm really excited to have our guests who are not just people who've implemented ultrasound within their system, but have been actively participating in the education programs that have led to that rollout. The This topic of ultrasound is, um, I think, one of the, if you kind of think of five cool new things in EMS, newish, ultrasound is always in there. And Maya and I have been talking about this a little bit about this idea of shiny new toys versus true utility and, and what... Um, what ultrasound can do for us. My agency uh, in Northern Virginia, where um, I'm a volunteer paramedic now, um, after being a career medic, um, has ultrasound on the supervisor vehicles for 
um, cardiac arrest, <clears throat> excuse me, to detect heart motion. Um, and the person that implemented all the training, I just want to tell you this story because I think it's so great, is one of the medics who um, was super interested in ultrasound, always was chatting with me about it, wondering if I knew people who could help with ultrasound and implementing something in the agency. And I finally found out the reason. And it's because his, ho- his excuse me, wife works in a hospital um, and she's a radiologist and she, um, does a bunch of ultrasound training. And so he decided to take it upon himself to not wait for the department and instead had his wife teach him ultrasound. And then he taught the whole department how to do ultrasound, um, be- based on what his wife taught him, which I just think is such a great EMS story of a champion. So he always says that when he starts his trainings, he says, hi, I'm Edgar. I'm taught by my wife. Um, she is the master, not me. One of the places that we can get started is maybe just have each one of our guests go through and discuss sort of what applications your system is using pre-hospital ultrasound and how did you decide on rolling out those particular applications? So Jenna, do you want to get started? Sure. So in my geographic area, there are a couple of services that are using ultrasound in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Uh, We have a couple services that are utilizing ultrasound to look at the carotid arteries as kind of a surrogate for pulse checks. And I have a handful of other agencies that are using ultrasound to do fast exams and then also uh, using ultrasound for lung assessments as well. So how did the different agencies decide on those particular exams? Are they all doing all of them or did one agency decide like cardiac arrest for a particular reason? So in the more urban area of Albuquerque Metro, the crews are primarily doing out-of-hospital cardiac arrest ultrasound. And that rollout was really part of, I think, the answer to a greater scientific question of just what do we understand about the mechanical activity of the heart in cardiac arrest. And does that even matter? So for decades, we've been running cardiac arrests solely based upon the electrical information of the heart and have been basing all of our resuscitative interventions, our decisions on termination, our therapies, et cetera, solely upon the heart's electrical activity. And I think as we've begun to understand more resuscitation science, and certainly as we've learned more about ultrasound, and as ultrasound has become just more uh, deeply steeped in the practice of emergency medicine, I think we've started to ask questions about, well, what is the heart doing mechanically? And does that, how does that, how should that play a role in our resuscitation? Is that important information? And being that, at least in our our setting, our our geographic area, almost all of our cardiac arrests are being run outside of the hospital. So if we were going to gather any information about the mechanical activity of the heart, we were going to have to do it by getting that information in the field. So in the areas where uh, cardiac arrest ultrasound is being used, it's primarily for information gathering. So taking a quick uh, video clip of the heart's mechanical activity during pulse checks, and then basically just kind of making a note of that. Um, Certainly, there have been instances where um, perhaps a reversible cause of cardiac arrest has been identified, 
or where mechanical activity of the heart has organized mechanical activity of the heart has been seen in a situation where um, either pulses are not palpable or the electrical activity of the heart maybe isn't what we expected. And in those instances, um, crews are able to reach out to online medical direction to kind of discuss those findings and determine what, if any, change in the management of the resuscitation uh, should take place. But currently, there's we haven't uh, utilized the ultrasound findings as a means of either determining a resuscitation interval or um, specifically shortening a resuscitation interval based on, say, lack of mechanical cardiac activity. So I would really describe the the cardiac arrest uh, rollout or or implementation as somewhat more information gathering rather than designed to be a deliberate change in practice. Um, In two of the areas where uh, the FAST exam is being used, um, it's primarily as the decision-making tool to help crews determine if it's appropriate to um, perhaps bypass a level three trauma center in lieu of going to a level one trauma center. So in Sanibel County, where I provide medical direction, crews actually um, have the ability to transport to a level three trauma center, which is substantially closer than UNM hospital, which is our only level one trauma center in the state of New Mexico. And so for certain patients that maybe have a really high mechanism of injury, but don't have, but the patient doesn't meet anatomic or uh, physiologic criteria to immediately go to a level one, the FAST exam and, you know, certainly the uh, components of the pulmonary exam will help these crews actually kind of get a better sense of what this patient's injuries might be. And if they have a patient who has a big mechanism, you know, fairly stable hemodynamically, but they identify a positive FAST, um, that's a patient that I'm kind of directing them to preferentially transport to the level one trauma center, just recognizing that that's someone who likely has injuries that are going to be best managed there versus having a FAST exam that's negative, ideally serially negative over you know, a long transport time, they can say, okay, this is someone who, yeah, scary mechanism, but doesn't have the anatomic or physiologic criteria to go directly to level one. So this ultras- these ultrasound findings have kind of reaffirmed our decision based on field trauma triage criteria that this is someone who's appropriate to be transported to the level three. Francis, do you want to tell me about what's happening in Indiana? Prior to the project I'm currently working on, which is using lung ultrasound to be able to identify patients with acute heart failure versus other causes of shortness of breath, um, we really weren't using any ultrasound in the pre-hospital setting other than one of our medical directors has a handheld and he personally used it when he's on runs. um, But the uh, paramedics really weren't, didn't receive any like specific training and follow-up. I think they learned some trauma ultrasound um, and our helicopters or lifeline here have an ultrasound system, but not sure how much of it was actually being used. Um, And so I approached a medical director at a smaller EMS agency, so not Indianapolis EMS. And one of the reasons we chose a smaller agency was just to have more insight and kind of more control over what was going on. 
when you look at the literature specifically for uh, looking to identify heart failure, it's been done previously in like Pittsburgh and Yale, and um, they've not had very good success with implementing ultrasound. And I think one of the reasons was they kind of went too big. Um, they trained too many people at once and was like, hey, here's an ultrasound, go out and, and use it. Um, and that really works with uh, people who are early adopters are really excited about the technology, less so with uh, maybe those middle or late or maybe even never adopters. And so I really wanted to have a lot more oversight into um, who is using it, when they're using it, what are they seeing, um, and really so they could get the feedback that they needed to ensure that one, yes, they're doing it correctly. Um, they're acquiring images correctly or interpreting them, them correctly, as well as guiding care for patients. And so because I'm specifically interested in heart failure, that's essentially how we chose that application. Now, there are many paramedics here who are really excited about using it for things like, like trauma, especially in cardiac arrest, or even uh, for vascular access. Um, and I think ultimately we'll kind of get there. Um, but lung ultrasound was an easy one to kind of choose because I think it'll have huge impact on making a diagnosis um, as well as it's just something that's really easy to do. Melissa, you want to tell us what's happening in Austin Travis? Sure. So there's quite a bit that we're doing out here, Austin, Travis County. Um, so about two years ago, we implemented our ultrasound program. We started off with eFAST as well as um, cardiac arrest assessment and then also obstetrics we added on as well. Um, adding all of those on because we felt like those were the areas in which we'd be able to have the best change in patient care, um, you know, assessment for our, our patients who have had no prior obstetric management in the entirety of their pregnancy, and they come to us third trimester feeling the need to push, and we felt it was beneficial to have our medics trained as far as just determination of what's my presenting part so that they're not surprised by a foot-laying breach um, as, as opposed to an expected overall crowning. Um, we, as of yet, haven't had a breach presentation um, captured on ultrasound, but I'm just waiting for the day because I am getting the value exactly. <laughs> Few is right for all of my crews. Um, but I am, you know, I'm seeing more obstetric ultrasounds than actually anything else coming through the logs, um, which I am surprised about. But our crews are out there scanning everything from first trimesters all the way to, to third trimester pregnancies. Um, as well as assessment for TORs in the field, as was previously discussed, and then assessment for COPD versus CHF on our pulmonary assessments as well. So they're doing they're doing a lot. Um, I have a bunch of medics as well that are chomping at the bit. They're asking me to do quite a bit as well. Um, anything from assessment of abscesses, uh, retinal detachments, vascular access. So I'm still having to have them push the brakes, but. I've got hopefully quite a bit that's going to be coming out here um, in Austin as long as we're we're still training up well. So all all of you have described a um, huge variety, as we promised, of uh, not only what you're doing now but what's what's coming down the pike. We on the podcast, of course, are really interested in giving tips to our audience of educators and uh, learners the best practices for how to implement this and how to teach it. So let's go around the horn again. Um, and can you talk about sort of 
what lessons you've learned um, from whatever education you started, how it's changed perhaps, um, and maybe um, what you're looking towards the future to do differently or the same in the classroom or online. Jenna, can you begin? Sure. So um, I think for, so for cardiac arrest resuscitation, that skill has been in place in the city of Albuquerque for a bit longer than some of the other areas that I described. So we've been doing cardiac arrest ultrasound here in the city since about 2018. And our initial training was basically about four hours or so of kind of lecture content, looking at lots of uh, video clips, doing some anatomy uh, instruction about how the heart looks in three dimensions, et cetera. And then another roughly four hours devoted to hands-on scanning just to basically uh, develop competency in that one that one type of exam. Um, as I've kind of broadened the applications uh, to include the fast exam and, and long ultrasound, um, I've kind of uh, harnessed the power of um, just l- having folks learn ahead of time through some recorded lectures directing them to some particularly helpful uh, YouTube content and having them spend basically as long as they need before our in-person training session, getting familiar with the techniques and what things look like on ultrasound using those materials. And then um, basically they're they're ready to hit the ground running for our in-person session. And we can spend basically four to six hours doing hands-on hands-on training the whole time. Francis, go ahead. um, Tell us about your educational program. First, for me, it was really just assembling the team. I'm ultrasound trained and really know very little about the pre-hospital system. And so I really had to get buy-in from the medical director and then the chief paramedic as well. We had to get equipment, which I think was really the biggest hurdle beforehand was, where are we going to get equipment? And so I had two handheld ultrasound machines that I was using. And lucky enough, um, one of the makers of a handheld ultrasound machine is lending us Uh, equipment, basically, to study the implementation of ultrasound uh, for patients with heart failure. So that has worked out. So now every ambulance has their own ultrasound. And we started small. So we met with all of the paramedics um, during their kind of training that they would normally get on evaluating a patient with shortness of breath. Uh, We spent about 20 minutes going through uh, how would they assess a patient using ultrasound, what would they be looking for, where would they place the probe, how they would actually use the machine. And then we spent about an hour with um, where one or two would model, and we just spent time just scanning on the chest. Here's where you would place the probe. Here's how you would do a recording. And we also tested them before and after Um, just a written knowledge test, as well as we did an OSCE after that, where we sat with them with a standardized patient and asked them questions like, how would you, uh, where would you place the probe? What would a beeline look like? Where's the plural line? Things like that. Um, If a patient had 
um, A lines on one side and B lines on the other, where would you scan next? And how would you then treat the patient just to kind of get an understanding of if they really understood what the the protocol is. Um, One thing I didn't mention is um, for lung ultrasound, normally there's eight zones, but because I wanted to make it feasible, uh, we changed it to a two zone, just looking in the anterior superior zones. And if either of them are negative, then looking in the lateral zones to be able to say, yes, there are B lines on both sides of the chest. Um, so the zo- the image protocol could be two looking in two zones or looking in four zones. Um, we then did some ride-alongs with the medics and showed them how we would implement it on actual patients because sometimes you learn something and then you go out and you have no idea how to where it's going to fit in in your assessment or your treatment and. Um, I think that was helpful, although, of course, when you start to study something, you notice no one has that diagnosis anymore. So we spent quite a bit of time doing ride-alongs where no one was short of breath. Um, But even if I had a trauma patient, I was like, this is where you would put the probe, and this is what you would be looking for, and then this is what your treatment would be. Um, And so definitely the more time they had having the probe in their hands, the more comfortable they became. And as we rolled it out to each um, ambulance, then we did more trainings along the way. And the nice thing about being able to track who is doing the ultrasound, it's, it's easier to identify who's getting it right away and who's struggling. And so you can give some one-on-one feedback to them as well. I was going to uh, just cut in here, and, and I, I've been that chief sat in the corner office when somebody's coming and said, we want this bit of kit, boss. And, of course, my first question is always, well, who the heck's paying for that then? The answer is if you don't have it in your budget, then grant funding is the answer. And don't forget, if you're listening out there, training managers and leaders, that assistance to firefighter grant isn't just for firefighters. If you're in the public sector, um, you can apply for that. There is an element of that particular grant that actually is allocated to EMS equipment. Um, Other such sources, if you have a firehouse subs in in your area, they have a charitable uh, donation program. You can apply for that. I certainly got all of my Stop the Bleed kit from firehouse subs, believe it or not. Um, There are other sources out there uh, walmart have a charitable trust and there's many many others and uh, hillary we'll find a few more and put in the show notes because i think this equipment of course it costs um you know money is always is too tight to mention but there are ways of getting grants in to pay for this equipment so uh, well good point well made and i thought i'd just chip in and hopefully we can uh, offer some some suggestions and solutions Love um, it, Rob, from your COO perspective. And, and also what Frances said about uh, her um, equipment manufacturer actually loaning them equipment. Um, you can just ask them. Um, and sometimes they say yes, right? I mean, I think some people are afraid to ask for things that are free, but you, you'd be amazed at what you would get when you just ask and say, look, we want to try this. Can we, can we uh, you know, borrow one for 30 days or whatever and see if it's actually going to work? Um, so really great. Um, answers there to the the problem of funding. Melissa, tell us about your education program. Sure, yeah. So our implementation of the ultrasound, we use Butterfly uh, for our primary ultrasound tool. It The first class was terrible. I'm not even going to lie. It was absolutely horrendous. Um, you know, it was... 
a class that was not as structured as I think it should have been. We thought starting with heart assessment was going to be the best because it's the most confusing. So get them while they're fresh. And uh, we didn't think of the idea that we're throwing people who have never touched an ultrasound have maybe seen one or two ultrasound images in their life and asking them to <laughs> interpret a, a heart assessment. So uh, our process now is, as Jenna said, we're using pre-class time. So they're getting about an hour worth of lecture-based format, um, various clips pulled from YouTube, as well as slide assessment for exactly what is the functionality of an ultrasound, what is Butterfly providing in the different presets, what does the preset even mean in terms of changing that ultrasound modality and, and use of the ultrasound. So that when they're coming to class, they actually have a little bit more of an understanding of exactly what uh, the ultrasound does, what it, what all the different buttons do and what they mean. Um, we started off with training super users. So here in Austin, Texas, we have district commanders. We have seven on at each time, as well as a district medical officer. Um, so they are all trained up as far as, as I can get them up to my level on being able to do an ultrasound. And so we use them as champions for ultrasound in the field to help crew members who are struggling with their ultrasound to kind of provide some secondary feedback in real time. And then we went through a about four hour class where it was broken up into pulmonary assessment with a break to do some scans on live on live subjects and then moving on to fast exam with another break and then cardiac assessment. Um, very rarely we would actually get uh, an obstetric patient to come in and actually provide us the ability to use um, their baby for, for some ultrasound practice. But when it did happen, that was, that was a highlight. Uh, so that's how we've implemented that. And we currently have Butterfly out in the field on every single truck. Um, utilized by our advanced level providers um, for for use in the field. I am um, I don't have pre hospital ultrasound yet, um, but I have been teaching it within my paramedic program, and we have been studying locally the effect of, sort of pre hospital ultrasound on paramedic decision making, actually particularly around patients with shortness of breath. And I think when I listen to this conversation. One of the reasons I chose thoracic ultrasound was because unless you're studying it, right, patients with shortness of breath are common. When we retrospectively looked at our regional data for patients where we did a thoracic ultrasound in the ED for lots of times where patients, right, where is this CHF or is this COPD and what's my management plan? When we looked back at the treatments that they had received regionally pre-hospital, a lot of patients had been misdiagnosed pre-hospital. So a fair number of the CHF patients had gotten three duonebs. There was also like the kitchen sink approach, right? Like everybody got DEX and nitro and duonebs and <laughs> CPAP. Um, and we thought that we had a lot of room. But the other reason was it's incredibly easy to teach. And so we have like a, you know, one hour sort of video that they watch and they, and in that, then we have a series of cases that they work through. So I have cases, real cases with video clips that they review and have to say, is this an A-line pattern? Is this a B-line pattern? What's my diagnosis? What's my management? Um, and a lot of practice on that. So if I'm, I hope I live in New York, it's hard to roll things out here, but <laughs> if I had to choose one, I think I've seen so many patients been misdiagnosed, but I've, have a lot of confidence about the ability to obtain a good image for thoracic ultrasound as well as how quickly it's done. 
I think the other thing for me when I was thinking about, you know, what would I roll out first? And this is all hypothetical, right? Because I haven't gotten the chance to do this. When I think a lot about sort of the number of tasks you have to do and what are the priorities of care for different patients, we've at the same time that ultrasound has been developed, right, in pre-hospital and being brought out, we've also developed a lot of research about which patients should we really be staying on scene with and where do we have data that we need to do a lot of stabilization and get patients along the trajectory and these bad respiratory distress patients from the work that was done out of Pittsburgh, that's now part of the Pennsylvania state protocols, right? Like these are patients where what the patients need is what we have in EMS. We just need to get the right treatment for the underlying pathology. And I think ultrasound can really help us there. So someday soon we'll have it. And we've been teaching the paramedic students um, and the people coming out of the program because I think it's worth it as part of the curriculum because I think they're going to see it as part of their clinical practice. Thank you for that, Maya. And before we carry on, we're just going to take a second to have a word from our sponsor, EMS Gives Life. Hello, I'm Christine Fichter, the Executive Director of EMS Gives Life. At EMS Gives Life, our mission is simple. We educate the EMS first responder community on how to become a living organ or bone marrow donor and then provide support if you choose to give this gift of life. Our organization was inspired by pro-EMS paramedic Will Lindbergh's selfless decision to anonymously donate a portion of his liver saving the life of a three-year-old boy. We know our community is full of heroes who perform life-saving acts every day. It is this heroism and selflessness that we're counting on. More than 6,000 people die each year on the transplant waiting list. Deceased donors are simply not enough. Living organ donors are desperately needed, and our community is up for the challenge. Would you consider being a living donor if you had the support you needed and the assurance that you will go to the top of the list if you ever needed a transplant in the future? Through our partnerships, we can make those promises. If you're curious about living organ or bone marrow donation, let's talk. And if you're already a living donor, we'd love to hear your story. You can find us at emsgiveslife.org. Thank you. As always, uh, thank you, Christine. Don't forget, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, please take a chance to give us a rate or review on the platform that you're listening to us on. And we're available on many, many platforms, right, Hillary? Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, you name it. Anywhere anywhere you're listening, you can hear us. And uh, there aren't any others like us. So never fear. You won't search for something and uh, get the wrong one. You'll only get the right one. Yeah, you know what? This is real intelligence on this podcast, and it's absolute real chat without the GPT. There you go. What does GPT even stand for? I, I don't I know. Answers, answers on a postcard, please, or, uh, or <laughs> answers on a $20 bill to Hillary at uh, the above address. Before we talk a little bit more about QA, QI, and logistics, um, just based on what you all answered when you talked about your educational program, what tips would you give to someone listening today um, in starting their program? What lessons have you learned? Um, what would you tell them to do? What would you tell them not to do? Just uh, some quick tips here. I'll start with uh, Francis on this one. I feel like I'm relatively newer into teaching the paramedics. Um, I will say I did, I wanted to do this project for about six years. So I've had some time to review the literature and kind of figure out what I think would work and what wouldn't work. So um, I would say start small. Um, it can become quite overwhelming. I think if you train broadly, at least for me, I feel like, 
it would have been really challenging. I, I feel like when we first started, um, we were rather successful. Like the images that were being acquired, the interpretations, the treatment that was being given to patients, um, the paramedics just really, they really got it really quickly and they were doing a really great job. Um, I think if you start too big, it can, it can just be tough to have that oversight. Uh, one thing I will mention that I didn't mention before is I had an internal grant to kind of roll out this project. And so I was able to incentivize the paramedics to use ultrasound. So I actually pay them $25 in gift cards every single time they do an ultrasound. <laughs> So uh, because I, again, I think if you don't, if I wasn't incentivizing them, I, I feel like I would have a lot of reasons why ultrasound wasn't done. And I'm trying to get those middle to late adopters. I think the, the people who are really excited about it are going to do it. Um, and everyone else may or may not, depending on if they have the time. And so by incentivizing them, at least they feel that it's, somewhat important or I'm, I'm giving them something in return. Um, and I think once they learn how helpful it is, then I won't need to incentivize them anymore. It'll just kind of become practice. Um, my one thing you mentioned before, which I, what I also found, um, find to be true, and I know it's true everywhere because of the literature on it, is just how patients with shortness of breath are so mismanaged. You see it in the emergency department. It's also in the literature. Before I even started the project, I did a retrospective review of just the Indianapolis data and found that sensitivities were so poor for heart failure. And when I started doing the trainings with the paramedics and we meet with them individually, they'd be like, I had no idea like how bad we were at getting this diagnosis, which blew my mind because um, I can't believe they've never heard that before. But at least where I am, almost every single patient was getting albuterol if they were short of breath um, or if they were wheezing, which we know there's other things can cause wheezing. And so I think... Um, just by giving them feedback, they're more willing to learn a new skill. And by incentivizing them financially, um, they're using it. Oh, I think, uh, Francis, you've just um, taught paramedics what it's like to be a fee-for-service physician, right? You can just order the test, get paid. Order the lab, get paid. We've never done that before. I think that I think we're on to something. <laughs> Um, the other thing I have to mention in all seriousness, um, Francis, I'm glad you're outraged that uh, paramedics didn't know that they were misdiagnosing. But we know that one of the biggest problems in our industry is that we don't get follow up on our patients. And we don't know if the diagnoses and, and the treatments and the interventions that we performed were the correct ones. So we have to fix that. We have to close that loop. And lots of places are working on that. Um, but that would absolutely uh, enlighten us and make us do ultrasound without the $25 because eventually you're going to run out of money. Um, Melissa, uh, what tips would you give uh, to someone starting a program, things you've learned? Yeah, of course. Uh, well, first off, I hope everyone out here in Austin doesn't expect $25 because <laughs> uh, I don't have that kind of money. Um, but I already sent a text to Chief Lockeritz <laughs> telling him to uh, dig deep into the coffers, by the way, just so you know. 
Oh, as long as he's got it covered, that's perfect. That's perfect. Um, I completely agree with everything that Francis just said. I think that the main problem we had out here in Austin is we started big. We had big goals. We had big dreams. We were coming straight out of COVID and we were tired of not getting to make any big changes. And so we threw it at everybody and everything that moved pretty much. Um, and I think we did have some problem with not only retention of the information, because we took four different ultrasounds and threw all of those at them in one day, um, as well as expecting everybody to be as excited about ultrasound as I was. I mean, I was a fellow teaching this class. I was bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and you know, having those those medics who, you know, they didn't want the ultrasound. They were, they were fine with their management of the way that it was, you know, they, they didn't see any issues with the management of their patients or how it could be really improved with ultrasound. Um, I, I didn't see that coming. So expecting to have some resistance as well, uh, was opening and, and was helpful for me to learn how to navigate. Um, that, those are probably the big things. Good. And Jenna, what would you add? I would say that anyone who's looking to implement pre-hospital ultrasound in their system or to teach this skill to their clinicians, uh, I would advise them to start with why. Like, what are you hoping to achieve by implementing this skill? What what problem are you looking to solve or what what gap in, in care do you expect ultrasound to sort of help bridge? And I think if you reflect on on the why, then I think that will help you choose the exams that are going to be most impactful for your system. And I think that's going to really help get buy-in from the clinicians that you're teaching. Because if you can share the why with them, then it becomes a new tool that they can use to care for their patients and not just like the shiny new thing like we were talking about in the beginning of the podcast. And so I think that would be my, my most key message to, to anyone out there listening that wants to, to do this. And secondarily, I would echo what Francis and Melissa have both said about starting small. I think choosing a limited number of exams is important and potentially even choosing a limited number of providers to do these skills in your system. If you work in a, a large system where you have many, many people that are going to potentially need to be overseen, maybe choosing like just some of the supervisors or people that are going to be responding to the highest number of calls and and starting with them versus trying to equip every single person with it and then figuring out how to maintain skill competency and and having people get enough exposure to the skill to remain competent in it. Um, I think that would be kind of my my secondary piece of advice. So The transition I want to make is because I think that this lesson of start small, well, actually start with a problem that you're trying to fix, right? So if we take the example of respiratory distress and mismanagement, or we can take an issue around cardiac arrest, or we can talk about long transport times in a rural system and best appropriation of resources, you got to start with a problem, Right? And then you have to have something that you're measuring. And then you do these small tests of change where you sort of figure out how to roll it out with the smaller group of people and, and look at the impact that has for the patient. So 
the reason I like that is because the principles that you came through for what is most important in your education, I think, are also the fundamental principles of quality improvement, right, which are like, what are we trying to accomplish? How do we measure whether or not we're getting there? And what changes can we make? So I'm interested in what your quality management programs look like for this because when I think about how I learned ultrasound, it was like feedback, feedback, more feedback, and then some more feedback, and I'm still getting feedback on how to continue to improve my skills. So how do you manage that within the system? So you're you're looking at it. I am the QI process for ultrasound out here in Austin. Um, and that's it's still a moving target for us. Uh, I give feedback on absolutely every single ultrasound image and video that's submitted by my by the crews here at here at Austin. Um, and at the beginning, it was really slow. I probably got like maybe one or two a month, and then slowly as I've gotten more and more buy-in from crews, I'm starting to get upwards of one a day, two a day, kind of depends. Um, and it's it's really that my like you said, it's feedback. I'm you know, interpreting the ultrasound as I see it with absolutely no information as far as the patient complaint. Um, and I'm giving them some tips and hints as, you know, hey, I think you missed your your Morrison's pouch because you're probably a little bit too superior on your angle. Um, I would try this, try that, X, Y, Z, and, and reaching out to crews and saying, hey, if you need me, I'm, I'm happy to come by. We can do an ultrasound session uh, just for a refresher for, for people who want to to learn more about their ultrasound skills. So you guys mentioned uh, QI, and uh, it's probably going to be old news by the time this airs. And Maya, you may not have heard this, but uh, uh, the NEMSAC, the National EMS Advisory Council, is just having a change of uh, teams. And for those that uh, aren't aware how NEMSAC works, there is a person appointed for each discipline. So you have a private ambulance person, a fire person, et cetera, et cetera. The newly appointed as of tomorrow uh, representing QI for the nation, Maya, is none other than Michael Tegman. From all of us, Mike, congratulations, mate. We're very, very pleased and very proud of you. Keep That's kicking awesome. ass, Mike. Sorry, Hillary, I need to correct you. It's arse. Arse, <laughs> arse. I think uh, one of the things we definitely want to hear from all of you as we wrap today is what's the impact of patient management and kind of how has this changed treatments and interventions and, and uh, patient care? How has it helped them? I know some of you are probably ready to have enough numbers that you can actually report uh, real data um, if you're willing to share it. Um, and some of you are still in the early gathering phases, but let's hear um, what has changed or what has improved um, or maybe not improved because uh, not everything works every time. Uh, Francis, what do you have so far that um, you can report on? Well, I will be presenting this data at SAEM, so not sure when the podcast is coming out. Um, But basically, I'm able to track every patient that's transported with shortness of breath, and I'm also able to track every ultrasound that's being performed. Um, And so we looked at our first two ambulances that had ultrasound. One had ultrasound for about six months and one for about three months. And there were 40 ultrasounds performed on about 260 some odd patients that ended up meeting inclusion criteria. 
94 patients or about a third of the patients had heart failure. And we were able to show that uh, without the use of ultrasound, sensitivity and specificity for diagnosing heart failure was 23% and 97%. Um, So from that data, which is very similar to what's been published previously, uh, medics are really great when they make a diagnosis of heart failure, it's almost like they have to be really sure to go down that pulmonary edema pathway. Um, But their sensitivity was, was really low. When they used ultrasound, we found that the um, sensitivity improved to 71%. So went up by about 50%. So um, and the, the specificity didn't change much. It was 96%. So using ultrasound, they had way better accuracy for being able to diagnose heart failure and rule it in. Uh, we also track treatment. And so I can tell when an ultrasound is done during the course of the entire pre-hospital care Um, from when they first see the patient to when ultrasound is done to when treatment is started. And so of the 94 patients that had heart failure, 14% um, received pre-hospital heart failure therapy, which for us, at least prior to about a month ago, was just uh, nitroglycerin and CPAP. 14% of patients received that um, compared to 53% after the implementation of ultrasound in those patients who had ultrasound that was used. So we were able to improve the frequency of pre-hospital treatment by 39%. And importantly, which I think is the most important, is we were able to cut down time to treatment to about 20 minutes instead of about 150 minutes, which is looking at patients who were not initially treated in the pre-hospital setting and then were not initially treated in the emergency department because obviously they have to get a big workup before treatment is initiated there. And that's really important because we know in heart failure, patients who are treated uh, within the first 60 minutes have significantly less in-hospital mortality. And so that's something we'll be tracking is time to treatment, changes in outcomes like mortality and ICU admissions and length of stay and and readmission. Congratulations. That is awesome. Yeah. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. So you're going to pre-present that at SAM at the end of May? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In about a week. I'll be in Austin as well. (laughs) Enjoying the weather. (laughs) Jenna, talk to us about your data so far, what you've learned, and um, maybe a story or uh, just some of your results. Sure. So the agencies where I've implemented pulmonary ultrasound and FAST exam, uh, it's we're still within the first basically year of its rollout. And those are agencies also that have, again, they're rural agencies, they tend to have lower call numbers. So um, I don't have a lot of compelling data to report that it's significantly changed patient management, particularly surrounding the uh, trauma center transport destination decision-making, but that's an outcome that I'm certainly going to be tracking as the skill kind of matures and there's enough time to gather enough numbers to potentially measure. But reflecting a little bit on the experience with uh, cardiac arrest ultrasound and Albuquerque fire rescue, you know, perhaps not surprisingly, the overwhelming amount of 
the ultrasounds really just kind of confirm what the rest of the resuscitative parameters have kind of suggested. And, you know, we are a state that struggles mightily with overdose-related deaths. And so, um, you know, we're seeing many, many individuals that have primarily asystolic or PEA arrests for the duration. And we have a, an ultrasound that kind of confirms that there's absence of mechanical cardiac activity. I will say that we've had a couple of instances where we've had kind of a, a pseudo PEA type situation or an electromechanical dissociation whereby the patient is still pulseless as we can, as best we can appreciate but appears to have had some sort of appreciable change in mechanical cardiac activity on ultrasound. And that has, on a few instances, prompted our field crews to transition more to like a severe cardiogenic shock type management picture rather than persisting in kind of ACLS algorithmic care. Um, and I can think of maybe one or two instances where that's actually led to a patient being transported to the hospital and to have a good outcome. Um, but overwhelmingly, I think we're just seeing the ultrasound findings kind of confirm um, what in, in many cases is basically a, um, a field termination of resuscitation, which, um, you know, is sounds kind of like a, a sort of depressing outcome. But I think when we're seeing, again, so many overdose related deaths, oftentimes, these are these are young people who had a primary respiratory insult, who have otherwise very resilient hearts. And so the other resuscitative measures can really suggest that, you know, this is perhaps a viable patient. I mean, some of these patients are having persistently high end titles throughout the entire resuscitation. Maybe they have a PEA that changes minimally throughout the resuscitation, even at the 20, 30, 40 minute mark. Um, so then to introduce ultrasound into that picture where we have, where we can see like really agonal mechanical activity, or we can see a heart that is just not moving at all. I think that can give crews the sense of um, understanding and affirmation that, yeah, it is, it is the right thing at this point to terminate our resuscitative efforts because we can see that this is a heart that's not moving, even though we might still have a really high end title or you know, a persistently um, PEA rhythm. So um, I think in those in those very difficult and tragic situations, I think the crews have drawn some benefit from being able to visualize a heart that is just not moving. There is a huge value in giving clinicians the tools that they need to confirm things and make them feel better about the really weighty decisions that we're making in the field every day. So congrats on that. Melissa, over to you for um, kind of what your numbers look like and what you're seeing and uh, where you go next. Yeah. So as far as numbers, uh, we're still in our infancy. We're still trying to get ultrasound studies saved. Um, so I don't have any raw numbers to give you, but I agree with everything that Jenna said. Um, we're having cases with pseudo PEA on a 40 minute ultrasound into the resuscitation where we convert over to uh, levofed drips with continued uh, compression with our Austin fire department. We are getting some of those patients back. Um, as far as survivability to discharge, I don't have that, but we are seeing those pseudo PEA cases. 
which you know keeps me up at night. How many patients have have I walked away from in my uh, EMS as well as hospital career that were pseudo PEA? Um, whether it would have helped or not, adding on pressors. Uh, but we've also seen a lot of cases where we've had positive fasts in the field, and those patients have gone straight up to the OR from our level one trauma centers. We're working on protocols with our trauma centers uh, in coordination with the Office of the Medical Director to try to get a positive fast in the field, being straight up to the OR. Don't even stop in the ED, just head right on up uh, just to further help those patients who are in need of effectively an XLAP, um, which is something that the ED can't provide. Uh, so those are some areas we've seen some changes. Uh, we've also been implementing our ultrasound with our uh, community health paramedics um, in coordination with, with our field docs to assess skin abscesses for possible drainage, uh, trying to keep patients out of the hospital, out of the EDs who don't necessarily need to go to find secondary sources of treatment options for them. We've had a lot of success stories with that as well. Uh, so we're really excited for what's next moving forward as far as implementation here in Austin. So for some last words, I think the best last words are excited for what's next. I'm just going to steal Melissa's. I think that I, I hope that the listeners get a sense of all the innovations that different systems are pursuing um, across the country that are trying to meet the needs of their particular EMS sort of communities and patient populations, whether or not that be a large urban system or a small suburban system or a geographically large but small call volume rural system. So uh, thank you very, very much. So this has been another amazing episode of uh, the EMS Educator podcast. We have discussed every, as I said at the start, every facet, every aspect, and also a little bit of a chat about grant funding because, of course, affordability is one of those things. But uh, And also, if you're a leader listening, get the $25 ahead ready for your budget too. Uh, seriously, though, this has been a remarkable edition, and thank you all very, very much for joining us for this edition of the EMS Educator podcast. Uh, Hillary, take us home. I just want to say that these uh, experts on our call today are really great examples of leaders in the industry, people who care about education, about quality education, and most importantly, who care about patient outcomes. And when paramedics and EMTs have the tools that they need to make clinically correct and informed diagnoses, and when we in the field feel supported by people like Jenna and Melissa and Francis and Maya. We are the better for it. So educators, if you're out there thinking about doing ultrasound, if you have a champion in your agency or your department who is chomping at the bit to do this, support them, help them, and learn the lessons that these experts have uh, shared with us today. And I'm sure you'll do great work. Thank you.